It's good to be in the apartment business. The market clamors for inventory and rents continue to rise. Whales like Blackstone have been on an investing tear with a strong housing theme, and apartment assets are trading almost daily. Case in point, Chicago-based Redwood Capital announced the sale of its 30-property portfolio to a private equity firm in Europe just this week for $1.7 billion. Times are unprecedented. The economy is fraught with risk and inflation and has everyone on edge. Even now, as the world shudders, certain truths prevail. Scarcity drives up prices, in this case, rents, and housing is primary to a functioning society. Balancing an asset portfolio is an obvious and known hedge to economic risk. Developers understand this, and many are moving their single-family and other skills to the multifamily space. As populations continue to relocate in unprecedented numbers to manage their own financial risk in inflationary times, developers and builders are pivoting to create the housing needed in these new and growing geographic markets. Today's guest knows a lot about such things. Tom Scar of Pacific Western Homes is an industry veteran. Spending the lion's share of his career in Portland, Oregon, he's certainly seen his share of economies and cycles. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Linda. Give us an overview. What do we need to know about you and Pacific Western Homes? Well, uh, Pacific Western Homes started in the very early days of the 90s. Um, initially, without me, I was involved in the initial startup and then went on to pursue other interests for a few years, uh, during which time a business partner carried the mantra, so to speak, and built some single-family homes and, uh, and did some developing. And then he and I joined up again in 1997 and have been together continuously ever since. And uh, during the late 90s, uh, we had the opportunity uh, when financing was readily available, not on our occupied financing, I should, I should clarify. Uh, we had the opportunity to build our first rental community on a little subdivision plat that provided for, I believe it was 32 lots of a mix of duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes in Northeast Portland. And so we built that and held it and financed the whole thing via non-owner-occupied construction permanent loans with a local bank. Um, and um, that really started our multifamily career, so to speak. And during that time, we were also uh, developing and building single-family homes. And so we fairly early on learned that it was possible um, to, to build multifamily when you're doing it that way. Um, and in, in many cases do so without having to have a lot of upfront equity capital involved because the, the builder profit, if you will, or the general contracting profit from having built the apartments, in most cases provided all or most of the equity required to actually hold the property and keep it. And so over the course of the next 10 years, we built um, probably six, 700 units of apartments, I guess. Um, a few of which we sold along the way in order to raise capital for bigger land deals that we were doing in like 2004 or five and six when everybody else was also trying to do big deals. Um, and it was about that time also that we discovered that there was really more money in, in developing and selling finished lots than there was in building houses. And so we, like a lot of people, transitioned away from vertical construction and just did horizontal. And then the market got so crazy, of course, as we all remember, in those years that there was almost as much money just in buying raw land and entitling it and then selling it, letting somebody else take all of both the horizontal and vertical. 
risk. So we did some of that as well. And then uh, in 2008, rather fortuitously, we decided to call it a day. <laughs> and uh, and we kind of quasi-retired, uh, quit, quit building much of anything for some number of years. Um, we were left with a few pieces of land here and there um, that we chose just to sit on for close to a decade. And then in 2016-ish, we built another 140 units of apartments in Bend, and we did another 55 units in Portland. And the last of that was finished uh, just before COVID in late 2019. And uh, since that time, we just manage our investments um, and, uh, and have decided to exit active building or developing for that matter. Uh, and now we participate just by virtue of lending to and mentoring other younger builders and developers. So it sounds like financing is what you what converted you from single family to multifamily. Anything else? Well, yes, yes. A, a, the, the wisdom and rather sage advice of a longtime uh, Portland apartment owner many, many, many years ago who suggested to us that as a merchant builder, you would do well in good times and starve in bad ones. Um, and that the way to wealth was to build and hold, not to build and sell. And that's true for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which, of course, is if you don't sell, you don't generate profit. And if you don't generate profit, you don't pay taxes. And so it affords you the opportunity to hold on to what you've created, let the appreciation game come into play uh, and, and generate wealth. And that proved to be, uh, I guess, it has proven to be successful beyond my wildest dreams, to be honest. It has allowed us the opportunity to do many, many things, both of us, and by, and by that I mean myself and my business partner, that we otherwise never could have done if we had just been single-family builders. And I think the proof of that uh, probably really was shown in 2008, 9, 10, 11, where many of our contemporaries in Portland who had remained just single-family builders all went broke. Uh, because they didn't have the income from the multifamily to fall back on. Well said. How do the skills needed to succeed in single-family development translate to multifamily? Well, in terms of the actual building, as long as you stay with simple, and by that I mean low-rise stuff, two, three-story walk-ups, flats, things of that nature, um, there isn't a whole lot of difference in terms of the construction or at least there wasn't. Um, it's gotten more complicated, of course, as time goes on. Um, midway through our construction career in multifamily, of course, we started having to sprinkle and do additional fireproofing and soundproofing. I mean, uh, certainly the codes got more intense as the 2000s wore on. Um, early on, it was really almost no different, particularly when we were just building duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. That was that was just a very natural transition for us. And we did a lot of that, actually. Uh, uh, we, we'd take over failed projects and communities from other developers who got in trouble. We did one of those uh, right post 9-11 um, that we built out a whole additional subdivision full of duplexes and we, we turned some of it into single family and built it and sold it but uh, when that was all done we ended up with i think about 75 or 80 units of townhomes and duplexes which we then sold off little by little over well in fact i just got rid of the last of mine of those just last year um 
So, you know, I provided additional income stream over quite a number of years as we, and they, and they appreciated a lot. Then they had about doubled or in some cases tripled in value by the time we sold them. And so that, that worked out pretty well as well. And, and that's, that was just a natural transition. So my advice for anybody who's single family uh, who wants to get involved in this is start with the simple stuff. Um, duplexes, try, and, and that's getting easier. Many, many jurisdictions, Portland among them, are now making it possible to build up to a fourplex on lots that not very long ago you could build nothing more than a single family home on. And so it's it's getting fairly simple to do that. Small townhome projects are simple to do. Um, we never did much in the way of condominiums. There's an awful lot of liability associated with that that we always wanted to stay away from. Thankfully, um, never got sued on any townhome or, or condominium project we ever built. Uh, only on the apartments that we sold before the 10-year statute had run out. But, you know, that's, that's life. So you've touched on this. Maybe give us an overview. How does working both in single-family and multifamily allow you to avoid the down cycles in what are both very cyclical industries? Well, it's been my experience that to some degree, when one goes down, the other one doesn't necessarily fall quite as far. Um, and the bottom line is that um, uh, people still need a place to live just about no matter what. And so um, in, in, in tougher times, perhaps like those that we're maybe coming into here before long, um, while, while rents may not accelerate anymore, and in fact, in the old days, they actually might decline. I'm not sure we're going to see that this time because we have this fundamental housing shortage that you touched on earlier, but in which I agree with 100%, by the way. Um, but I, it, it, you know, the bottom line is that it provides cash flow um, during tougher times when perhaps it's not possible to build and sell a house at a profit. And so it, it, it allowed us to have a shock absorber, I guess, if you will, or a cushion for the entirety of, of the decade that we continued to build in the 2000s. Now, you know, and although, to be fair, we didn't have much in the way of a recession during those years either. Um, the recession that followed 9-11 turned out to be almost a non-event for housing uh, and was very short. And so we were lucky. And uh, most of, you know, the, the hard times in my career were in the 80s when I first started, when Oregon was in the dump for the entire decade in the 80s. And then took all of the 90s really to crawl out of and, uh, but, but to answer your question specifically, I, I think I would key on the fact that if you just, if you're building both multifamily and single family, um, there may be opportunities in multifamily that exist even after the single family market's gone away, which also affords you the opportunity to be able to keep at least some of your staff actively employed and engaged what, uh, in building multifamily, even when single family is not possible. We are, we are in a tremendous housing shortage. I don't see that there's any way we get out of that, to be honest. I, I can't imagine how we could build our way out, not with things the way they are right now. Anyway. You worked in the Portland area, Tom, for much of your career. What was the environment like there for a multifamily builder? Well, like most anywhere, um, the NIMBYs were very much in evidence in Portland, even going back into the 80s. But that, that began to accelerate. Portland, as you perhaps are familiar with, uh, was the first major metropolitan area in the country to start to experiment with growth control. And, and in fact, passed landmark statewide legislation in the 70s, which provided for an artificial concentric ring around the Portland metropolitan area called the Urban Growth Boundary. And that didn't really come home to roost until the 90s when 
because you know, as I mentioned earlier, the entire decade of the 80s, we were mired in recession for, for the most part, and we were building relatively little product. Um, in the 90s, that began to change. The land began to get used up, especially the land that was easy to use. And, and in almost overnight in the early 90s, land prices doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again. And we went from a situation where in the 80s we could buy finished building lots of seven to 10,000 square feet for ten to $15,000 to all of a sudden now they're thirty-five dollars to $50,000. And this is in the early 90s. And then by the 2000s, they were seventy-five to 125000 And today they're two hundred to 250000 And oh, by the way, the lots are like 4,000 feet instead of seven to 10. And throughout that time, uh, Oregon and Portland, and there's a metropolitan government association in, Port in kind of sort of in charge of land use in Portland, which and has been for decades now, um, that steadfastly refused to acknowledge that more land, or at least a lot more land, is needed. They've done incremental expansions to that urban growth boundary over the years. But then when they do one, it can take as long as 10 years for the land that's brought in to be to be planned and zoned and then have infrastructure provided with which it can then be built out. I saw that happen over and over and over again. So, um, yeah, I guess the short answer is that Portland was always a very, very difficult environment to build in, whether it be single family or multifamily, to be honest. And uh, uh, you know, I had all manner of difficulty in getting multifamily projects approved or even single family, because inevitably, the neighborhoods who surrounded a vacant 10 or 15 or 20 acre piece of property perceived that property as their personal park or worse yet a place to dump their lawn clippings on and they didn't want to see it developed. And I had neighbors do everything possible to prevent me. Like one of the apartment communities that I still own today, uh, they actually went so far as to plant Indian artifacts on the site and then call the state of Oregon to come in and investigate it. Um, thankfully, the state of Oregon investigator who came out understood that this is likely not really Indian artifacts, at least not native to this site, and he didn't pay much attention to it. But but that's the kind of thing that, that neighborhood associations and disgruntled neighbors would do in Portland. And this, this is in like 2002 or three. This happened so long time ago. Um, but it's always been difficult. And, and that's true today as well. And, and that's, you know, we talked about housing shortage a little while ago. Um, at least if you consider why Portland, Oregon and the surrounding metropolitan area of Portland has a housing shortage today, the blame can be laid light, right squarely at the feet of local government. Um, and there's 27 or 28 of them in the Portland area, and they're all equally to blame. <laughs> well, the high cost of housing is a problem everywhere. What would you change about the development process to bring down the cost? I think it, it, to meaningfully change the cost we have to make, um, if a piece of property is zoned for X use, that needs to be an outright approval. Uh, there, there can be no process allowed to be included uh, in issuing permits for that particular project and that particular use. It has to be, you turn in a set of plans, they meet the zoning and setback requirements or they don't. If they don't, then you know, you change it or apply for a variance or whatever, and that's a little bit different ballgame. But if they do meet the base requirements, you need to be allowed just to have a permit, and there needs to be no local neighborhood involvement in that process. But good luck trying to get local elected officials to agree to that kind of a philosophy. And then the other piece that is, and, and you know, 
Systems development charges didn't start in Oregon by any means. That whole game, like many bad ideas, had its genesis in California. But they quickly, I mean, and part of the reason Portland is so messed up today is because so many people from California moved up there to escape what was going on in California and then brought their ideas with them. And slowly, by, slowly and little by little, increment by increment, they have um, turned Portland into California North, I guess. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I can remember hearing stories in the eighties and early nineties about, about it costing $20,000 to get a building permit in California somewhere, largely due to SDC charges and, and just being appalled. And, and then lo and behold, by the early two thousands, well, guess what? It costs that in Portland. And now um, I'm involved in, in the financing of a couple of single family residences that I just closed the loans for last week. And I saw the permit fee sheets for those two homes. And they're about $45,000 a piece just in permits for a single family home. And so when you when you when you take 45,000 for a permit and another 200 to 250,000 for a lot, and you're at $300,000 before you've ever turned a spade of earth or bought a two by four yet, it's not too hard to figure out why we can't build affordable housing. And the elected officials know this, but they don't seem compelled to want to try to do anything about it. So it's not the greedy developers. Oh, heavens no. Heavens no. No, I mean, I, I won't lie. We've, during good times, developers and builders are able to make good money. But we take a lot of risk, too. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and times aren't always good. So, you know, the bottom line is that uh, uh, appreciation housing benefits everybody. As they say, uh, you know, uh, forget the, this particular phrase, but uh, rising boats lift all, or rising tides lift all boats or something like that. And that's absolutely true, um, but but no, no, the the the, the rising costs are, cannot be laid at the foot of builders and developers. It's it's all about well, and, and, and we haven't even, haven't even talked about building codes yet. Um, had a tremendous impact, in particular, the energy codes have had on the cost of housing. Uh, the state of Washington um, imposed energy code changes in early 2022, which the Washington Home Builders Association has gone public is stating add $22,000 to the average cost of a home. And, and these building code changes are, are not things that are going to be necessarily able to be paid back in a reasonable period of time. You know, I know that National Association of Home Builders has generally said and has policy that, you know, seven year or so payback, that might be reasonable. Well, they're making us do things now that won't be paid back in 50 years. And uh, but, you know, the, 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 the never ending drive towards making this more green and and making houses net zero um, is prompting them to decide that it doesn't it just doesn't matter about affordability and and, and totally ignoring the, the dynamic that the low hanging fruit now is all that housing stock that's still laying out there that was built, you know, let's say, 1990 or earlier, which is not very energy efficient. I'd be the first to admit it. <laughs> uh, but but for the most part, the stuff that we have built eh, from the mid 90s on is reasonably efficient. And anything built after 2010 is probably ridiculously efficient. And uh, and so if, if we're ever meaningfully going to impact costs, we have to look at land supply, we have to look at permit fees and costs, and we probably have to roll back some of the energy stuff. And good luck with any of that, I'm afraid. I believe the um, statistic is the 1970s. 
those are the least efficient housing. So it's not the 90s, it's the 70s. Yeah, well, and from what I remember, you know, I, I entered the industry in 1978. And, and from what I remember of what I built in 1978 and how it was constructed, of course, it was low-end product then because that was how most builders start. But you're absolutely correct. Uh, it was not very efficient. But so, that all went away. What advice, Tom, would you give a young person entering the construction business today? Uh, to um, to learn as much as you can from peers, and and I, to be honest, I was taught to build by my subcontractors. They're the ones who, because I entered this business with virtually no knowledge of, I mean, as close as I'd ever gotten to construction when I started building houses was carrying plywood for a builder when I was a young teenager. Uh, and, and so I'm living proof that it's possible to do it. I have no formal education either. Everything that I know pretty much was self-taught. And I'm talking the business, the accounting, the construction, um, all aspects of it. Um, find a couple of good mentors who can help you along the way. There are people like me that are willing to help young builders uh, in terms of offering advice, sometimes even in terms of offering financial resources and help. Um, I'm lucky in that the, the, the pathway to, in, to enter the housing industry was much simpler when I got in than it would be today. Um, the aforementioned permits, just as a, for example, um, you know, when you could, in the early days, I could go buy a building permit all in for $3,000. You typically don't yet have a construction loan in place when you have to buy that permit. Um, and at least you didn't back then. And $3,000 wasn't a terribly large sum to have to come up with cash for. $45 or $50,000 is a little bit different animal. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's unquestionably much more difficult now for somebody entering the industry in terms of the capital requirements. Um, and, and I feel sorry. And, and that's part of the reason probably that we have trouble recruiting younger people to the association is that it's so difficult for younger people to get involved, at least as a builder and say, I guess they start as subcontractors or working for larger builders. But Virtually all aspects of this industry still provide some of the greatest avenues of self-employment and building wealth that can be found anywhere. And I couldn't tell you the number of framers that have turned builders, uh, the number of uh, plumbing apprentices who have become journeymen who five, six years later own their own plumbing companies. Um, it's a, there's just so much opportunity in all levels of this business. And so I would encourage anybody who who wants to be involved in creating the American dream Um just pick a spot that interests you and get started. You know, and, and if it requires you to work for somebody to begin with, then great, do that. There's all kinds of opportunity, particularly right now. There's probably not a builder in this country that's not trying to hire somebody for some position at the moment. And uh, and so jump in, get your feet wet, and and uh, work hard, which is what I did. Truly hard-earned words of wisdom, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. I, it was my pleasure. Housing is the defining issue of our time. It's not only fundamental to a productive society, but the nation's economic engine. While it's gotten little attention from Capitol Hill, the lack of housing will continue to vex us until it is resolved. Meanwhile, housing providers like Tom will lead the way. Thank you for joining us. Builders, developers, operators make this nation great. Thank you for staying in the game. Your ingenuity is getting product to market, and it's a beacon to all in dark times. Housing sets the nation's potential for success.
I'm Linda Hoffman. Look for our next exciting episode of NAHB Power Hitters.